This morning I woke up with a scripture. It's about the sons of Sceva who were driving out the demons. And um, the demons answered, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? And as I woke up, I saw all your faces. And the scripture sounded like this. Brady Boyd, we know. Robert Morris, we know of. But Ellen Platt, who are you? (laughs) Well, I just want to tell you, it's such a privilege to be with you. Thank you, Pastor Brady, for giving me the opportunity to uh, fire up this conference. And uh, you have such a great lineup of speakers. You're in for such an incredible experience. But let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'd like to introduce you to my family. That's my family. Liana is with me. And those are my two kids, Duncan and Amy. They're still both unmarried if I get a good offer while I'm here. We can talk. Um, it's marvelous when, when you have the gift of, of having kids that are journeying with God. And um, we are so grateful to God. I also have two of um, our leaders that are part of the traveling team from Doxadeo, South Africa, and uh, Shavian and Basil. Would you two guys just stand quickly? Just I'd like to introduce to you them as part of our team, you will see them around. Well, I'm, we reside in South Africa. We head up a ministry called Doxa Deo. Uh, it's a combination of two words, doxa meaning glory, deo meaning God. It's Latin and Greek. We brought these two languages together, and when we did, it made some purists mad. Um, I had a professor phone me and say, do you realize what you've done? And I explained to him that we did this very intentionally because we knew that God had called us to be a catalyst to bring different peoples together. And uh, in our city, we uh, are grateful to God. We, we have a church that has developed into a multi-site, multi-campus ministry since 1996 We now have 10 campuses in Pretoria serving about 30,000 people. And then we have churches that now are in the five main centers of our nation in other cities, Cape Town, Johannesburg, Bloemfontein, Durban, if you know the area. And uh, God has also graced us to reach out to other cities internationally. So we have a few campuses in London, UK, in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, We have in uh, Stuttgart, Germany, just planted a church. And all of this forms part of a missional journey that God has placed us on. In our city, we also engage very strongly in education, where we have seven different educational institutions. We have orphanages. We have skills training program, where we will have people going through this program, a thousand people this year. Um, where we will vocationally train people and place them into jobs. And I'm saying this to you because uh, I want to share with you this morning the journey that we have had that has brought us to this point. And uh, this morning, I I really want to speak to leaders. And 
Uh, one of the things that I realize is that after all of I've said to you, one of the worst things that leaders can do is to compare themselves with other leaders or other ministries. Comparison is one of the worst things that can happen to you. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks about that and says that we must not compare ourselves with one another, then we are foolish. Because God has a unique calling, a unique redemptive gift within your context and within your calling as a leader. So today I do not want to expound on doxodeo to try and get you to become doxodeo. I want to share a few critical principles with you that I'm trusting God would be helpful for you in your own journey as you engage what God has called you to do. Because whatever God has called you to do, you need to be very intentional about that. There's a scripture um, that I found. It's in the Taylor translation in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 26. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, so I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I fight to win. I'm not just shadow boxing or playing around. Isn't that powerful? Paul says, I'm doing what I'm doing very intentionally. I know what God has called me to do, and I'm not shadow boxing or playing around. The fact is, it's so important to have clarity in what God has called you to do. We as leaders take that responsibility to clarify the vision to our people. Because if we're not clear about the vision, the people would be very unclear about where we're going. Uh, somebody once said, if there's mist on the pulpit, there'll be fog in the pew. There needs to be clarity. Now, I've spoken to many leaders and asked them about their vision and their mission. And many times when they share the mission statement with me, it sounds more like a statement of belief than a mission statement. It's kind of, you know, we are a Bible-believing, soul-saving, nation-changing, devil-chasing, heaven-abounding church you know, it kind of brings the whole of the whole gospel together in some kind of a mission statement. When we talk about a mission or a vision statement, we're not talking about that which is pasted on the wall somewhere in the foyer. We're talking about what is the picture in the minds of the people regarding the future. Because remember, a vision is a clear mental picture of a preferred future. And we as people, when we think about the future, we think in pictures. As a matter of fact, most of the time we think in pictures. Let me tell you, when I, I stopped here this morning, I got out of the car and there was a dog. But it was an ugly dog. And it was a big dog. And this dog 
was a ferocious dog. This thing wanted to bite me. And I knew I had to get away from this dog. So I started running, but the dog was chasing me. So I jumped on somebody's car. No, there was no dog. But listen to what has just happened. When I said to you, there is a dog, you did not see D-O-G. You saw a dog. And you saw your nice little dog. And then I said, it's an ugly dog. And you knew it was not your dog. (laughs) And then I said, it's a big dog. And you saw that dog grow. And then I said, it's a ferocious dog. You saw that thing smiling at me, wanting to bite me. And I said, this thing wanted to bite me. I had to run away. You saw me running down the tarmac with a dog behind me. Why? Because as I was giving you information, I was changing the pictures of your mind. Now, folks, listen to me. If you have the wrong source of information, you will have the wrong pictures in your mind. And if you have the wrong pictures in your mind, you will have the wrong expectation of the future. And that's why, I mean... Even if you think about Abraham, the Bible says, Abraham against hope on hope believed, Romans 4 verse 18. What is hope? Hope is the expectation of the future. And the Bible says Abraham had a particular hope, a particular expectation, a particular picture. He's old, Sarah's old, we're not going to have kids. That was their hope, that was their reference, that was what they were expecting. But against hope, on hope, why? Because they heard God say something and it changed the pictures in his mind. Suddenly Abraham had anticipation, he's going to have a son He bought a little football and got the Bronco suit for the son and was, come on, any Broncos in the house here, is there? All right, all right. A clear mental picture of a preferred future. Now, I want to share with you this morning my own journey in terms of creating this picture and and capturing what God was saying to us as a ministry. I started out in the city where we stay in 1992, took over a church that had gone through crisis and many people had left and it was in a, a really ravished state. But we took over this church and within a few years, God really just brought restoration. It was amazing to see. People were flocking to the church, and we had become the the kind of the hot-numbered church in the city. Uh, People were talking about us, and they were excited about us. And so people were coming to the church, and we were exciting. We were running multiple services, and we were all gung-ho about, you know, being a good church and a strong church. And And then in 1994, within this whole experience of excitement about the church, we had a deep experience with God as a leadership where God challenged us very deeply to move from being a church for the church to becoming a church for the community. Now, we knew God had spoken, but we had absolutely no clue what that meant. 
But we were serious about it. So we said, Lord, if you want us to embrace our city and embrace our community, embrace our world, would you take us on a journey to give us strategy to better understand how we need to do this? Well, we, um, we took two years and then in 1996, when we thought we had an idea of what God was saying to us, we then relaunched our church and named it Doxadea. Now, it's, it's that sense of God speaking to us that I want to share with you. And one of the portions of scripture that God used to deeply speak to us and clarify something of the strategy for us was the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. Now, in that story, um, God gave us five key references that became guiding lights, became principles that have deeply affected the way we've approached church and how we've engaged in engaging our city. And I quickly want to share these five concepts with you this morning. The first one was really just where we coined it, moving from concern to compassion. Moving from concern to compassion. And really what this meant was we saw the difference between the disciples and Jesus. The disciples had concern. The disciples saw the challenge. They saw the problem. They were aware of the need. But immediately, they looked at their own resources and their own capacity, and, and they asked the question, what difference are we going to make? We cannot touch this need. So the way they responded to this was to say, let's send the people away. And Really, at that stage, although we were an incredibly thriving church and a, a great place to, to be and hang, you know, as a Christian community on, on all our celebration events and all the things that were happening, God suddenly confronted us and showed us that we were a very concerned institution, but we were not getting involved in the challenge. We were concerned about many things. We were concerned about our city, concerned about the social uh, challenges and the injustices and, and the sinfulness and the brokenness and all the stuff that was happening in our community. But we didn't feel that we could make a difference. We were just hoping more people would come to the church so that we can have a good, strong church. But we were not affecting our society. And then we looked at Jesus. The Bible said Jesus had compassion. And Jesus says to the disciples, we're going to give them something to eat. And it was as if that difference between concern and compassion was so clear to us that concern sees the problem but does not get involved. But compassion says, I'm going to get involved and I'm going to trust God that he will provide as I engage. 
Well, that was a challenge for us. Because I realized for us to move as a, as a body of people to this new paradigm of compassion meant we had to shift in so many ways. One of the key ways we had to shift was our theology. Because, you know, I grew up with a very strong gospel of salvation. But I knew very little about the gospel of the kingdom. Now let me tell you what the difference is. The gospel of salvation is we want to get people saved so that they can be part of the people that serve God within the church on their way to heaven. But it's clear to us Jesus communicated the gospel of the kingdom, which means that it includes salvation, but it's much more than salvation. And the gospel of the kingdom recognizes that Jesus is not just Lord of my salvation and about my own personal journey and about the church. Jesus is Lord of all. He has something to say about this world. He he wants to say something about education. He wants to say something about government. He wants to say something about business. He has something to say about our arts and our media and every dimension of our world. So I I had to shift. One of the clearest moments for me in the understanding of this was we tried to define our world. This is 1996. And um, we defined our world as eight spheres of society. Uh, Recently, I became aware that people are talking about seven, seven domains or seven mountains. I mean, we didn't know there's only seven. We found eight. So... uh, we still have the eight, you know. Um, so as wrong as we were, they were working for us. But we, we decided we're going to hang these banners up in the church to make the people aware of the fact that we are trusting God for transformation in education and in business and in government. And I remember the first Sunday we'd, we'd put up these banners. And after the service, uh, an elderly lady came down the aisle and she was crying. She'd been in the church for years. And she was crying, and I knew something was wrong. So I, I, I got off the pulpit and went to her, and I said, what is wrong? And she looked me in the eye and crying, and she said to me, I could never come back to this church again. I said, why? She says, look what you've done to God's house. Business in the church. We had a banner, sport. Sport in the church. And we made a mistake. Instead of saying government at that stage, we we called it politics. She said, politics (laughs) in the church. And I knew that was a mistake. And I said, but talk to me. She says, how can you bring this into God's house? And immediately I recognized the deep, dualism that had found its way in the hearts of our people, where there was the separation between spaces that are called holy and and spaces that are not seen as holy, and we've made this separation. And I said to her, listen, let me just tell you, I'm not wanting to bring the world into the church. I'm trying to get the church into the world. I'm 
trying to get people to understand if we don't affect education and we don't affect government and we don't affect business, some godless people will. And I recognize it's time for us to communicate to our people a deep understanding of Christ being Lord of our reality. Well, we're still on that journey. We had to not just move theologically, we also had to move philosophically. It meant that I had to change the way I thought about church and what was successful church and, and, and when was church really being effective. It meant I had to change the way I thought about our people. You see, it, I had to make the shift realizing that the people were not coming to the church for the program, but the people were now the program. It meant that people were not just coming to the church to be blessed. They were coming to the church to be equipped so that they could be commissioned and mobilized and sent into this world to go and represent the kingdom of God in a new and tangible way. As a matter of fact, we are now celebrating whatever happens to people outside is actually that which is the church now being active, doing that in that space. So if a teacher goes to her classroom tomorrow, She's not just entering that space because she loves education and she can endure children and she needs a salary. She's now a commissioned one. She's a sent one. She's the Adam of God. And entering that garden, that becomes her space that she needs to guard and tend. And whatever she does there is an extension of what we believe here. And we need to celebrate that and harvest those references. The move from concern to compassion. The second thing that God spoke to us in Mark chapter 6 was clarifying a strategy. It was very interesting to see how Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, guys, We're going to get involved. We're going to make a difference. But here's what we're going to do. I want you to go and break up this group into groups of 50s and 100s. And it's amazing that that Jesus gives them this task to go and do, even though they were not trained in crowd control. They now had to go and break up this big group of 5,000 into smaller groups. And I can just imagine how different everyone did that. I can just see John, soft-hearted John, going, saying, hey, guys, um, would you please help us here? We really need you to get into smaller groups. Yes, I know. I'm so sorry. Would you please, you know, come in? And then I can see Peter, right? (laughs) Peter. Right, groups, 50s, 100s, move. You see, 
we, we don't realize there was a whole system of logistics and organizational design and, 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 and engaging in this process. And many times, you know, we forget. We get a vision from God. We know this is what God has spoken. But because we do not clarify the strategy, potential is lost. I don't know if you have this stuff here in, in the States. We probably got it from you guys. You call it a fun run. You fun run? You have fun runs here? Where you run 5Ks or 10Ks? I don't know why they call it a fun run. There's no fun in it, but I mean, it's a, it's a fun run, all right? So let's say they're having a fun run here at New Life, and uh, they're all excited, and they bring the congregation together, and everybody's gung-ho, it's going to be 5Ks, and they decide they're going to bring a few marathon runners in just to, you know, heighten the event to another level, and they have these marathon guys here, and they're already, I mean, they, they just ready to run, and the Pastor Brady's here, and he's got the gun, and he fires the shot, and the next moment, the, the runners look at him and say, hey, hey, Pastor Brady, what's the route? And he looks at them, and he says, oh, come on, guys, you marathon runners, man, this is only 5Ks, go, man, go, and they sing, we want to go. But what's the root? You see, many times we fire up people. And we excite people with the dream and the vision and, and the purposes of God. And God's going to do great things. And God's going to give us the city. And God's going to change everything. And the people say, yes, thank God we're going to do this. And then they look at you and they say, so what's the root? And you say, Take another scripture, brother. God's with you. Bless you. God's giving us the city, man. And he's saying, yes, but listen to me. If the root is unclear, the best potential will be lost. Listen, when people are fired up to run and you do not clarify the strategy, they will start running anyway. And it's important for us to understand that part of our responsibility as leaders is clarifying the strategy. What's the root? So we looked at this and said, you know, smaller groups all over the city, and that's kind of stirred us. We started in 1996 to have multi-site, multi-campus ministry because our city is very demographically demarcated. We have affluent areas and then less affluent areas, and all the churches were, were kind of gravitating towards the affluent areas, and, and nobody wanted to go plant churches in the less affluent areas. So what we said is, why, why don't we bring this together where we can have churches all over the city, all working on exactly the same expenditure budget. Now we pool resources, we have one leadership, we have one reference, and now God is helping us to touch a whole community because the root has been clarified. And later this afternoon, if you're interested at the breakout session, I'll be spending a little more time to communicate to you what that looks like in practical terms. But the third thing that we were challenged with was Engage with expectancy. Engage with expectancy. Engage in a way that you anticipate that God is with you. 
Now, here's the amazing thing that happened with the disciples when Jesus told them to break up the groups into 50s and 100s. I can just imagine how t- challenging that must have been. I mean, here you go and breaking guys up into groups of 50. Why, why are you putting us into groups? Well, you know, we, we, we want to feed you. Oh, you're going to feed us? What food do you have? <laughs> well, just get into the groups. <laughs> have you been there before? Where you know God has spoken, but you don't know exactly how this is going to happen? All right, now they get the guys into groups of 50s and 100s. And then Jesus goes, what does he do? He takes the bread and the fish, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. And what does Jesus do? He does not break the bread and build a big reserve behind him so that he can give security to his disciples when they look at the reserve and say, well, at least there's a big reserve. Reserve matches need. This thing's going to work. He does not do that. What does he do? He breaks the bread and the fish and he puts it into the hands of the disciples. And he says to them, go feed my people. Now, I can just see the disciples. It must have been a moment, right? I can see how, how this disciple goes to the group of 100 and then decide, let's rather start with a group of 50. <laughs> I see him breaking off that first piece. I guarantee you, the first piece was a small piece. <laughs> Can you see that disciple? I mean, can you imagine the first guy getting that? So this is it? And then you see the next piece. And then he breaks off another piece. And he's breaking the pieces. There's an awareness. Something miraculous is happening. God is with us. Folks, let me tell you about our journey. Everything we have started, we started with fear and trepidation just on the basis of the belief that God said, start breaking the pieces. Not because we had the reserves, not because we knew that we had the capacity, but because we knew God had spoken. Now, can you imagine when that Awareness dawned as he was breaking the pieces. Suddenly, hey man, would you like a big piece? Yeah, you see that boldness, you see that that moment. When we started in Doxadeo, we were breaking very small pieces. Now our pieces have become much bigger pieces. But when we started, it was small pieces. But here's the principle, just start breaking the pieces. Start breaking the pieces. I remember one of our stories is, is when we just started speaking about all the city stuff and you know, we were challenging people about the city. One of the leaders came to me or, or, or the people in, in, in the church and, and he said to me, he was a policeman. He said, Alan, you know, you're talking about the city, city, city. Do you really know what's happening in the city? Do you know how bad the city really is? 
I said, no, well, educate me. He said, why, why don't you and a few leaders come one Friday night, and then at midnight, we will take you across the city and show you what the city looks like. So 12 o'clock, we, we arrive there on a Friday night, and they're educating us about the drugs and the prostitution and all the bad stuff that's happening in the city. And um, they load us up in, in this um, vehicle, and they start taking me with the other leaders to all the bad places in the city. I mean, going from club to club and stuff. And I, here I'm going, police protection, checking out what's happening in the city. And man, it was really, I, I, I got a shock of my life. I didn't realize all this stuff was happening in the city. The bad thing, however, was that some people recognized me and greeted me. <laughs> Hi, pastor. Said, hello, brother. <laughs> See you in church on Sunday. But as we were driving through the city, I was seeing literally hundreds of people lying out on the pavements. And kind of with an attitude, I said to the policeman, I said, what are these people doing here? And he said, they sleep here. I said, but why do you allow it? And he turned to me and I will never forget. He looked me in the eye and he said, because they have nowhere else to go. I didn't know that. I was staying out in a leafy suburb. I did not know that there was a crisis in our city where literally hundreds of people are laying out on the pavement. It rocked my world. I went back to the church because they were expecting feedback about our excursion. I went back to my church and I said, guys, let me just tell you something. I'm so challenged. I want to tell you before we even consider the sin of our city, let's consider the pain of our city. Let's reach out to the brokenness of our city. Let's see what difference we can make to the brokenness of our city. And we, I mean, I challenge the people and, 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 and so Tuesday morning, somebody arrives at the office and, and he's got two homeless guys there. And he says, Alan, you challenged me so much. I've brought these guys. What do we do with them now? <laughs> I said, why did you do that? He said, you told us. I said, well, I have no idea. What do you, where do we start? What do we do? I, I have no idea what we need to do. We suppose we feed them and clothe them. And, and they said, yeah, where do they stay? I said, man, I have no idea. Why did you do this? <laughs> and I realized, but we better do something. So we started looking for places to stay. And long story short, ultimately more people were reaching out. And we found this derelict old building, three-story building downtown, where area where nobody wanted to go. It had no window panes. It was just terrible. It had no ablution facilities. It had no electricity. And, and, and we found this building, and the owner said, well, if you can get all the witch doctors and all the drug dealers out of that thing, you can use it. So we came back to the church all excited. I said, guys, guess what? We got a project. I'm challenging you to go help me to go and fix up the building. And the people were looking at me and saying, are you crazy? What would we go do in that area? It's been a journey for us. And then we started fixing up the building and we started bringing people in. And there were a few hundred people that actually started staying there. It was terrible. We concentrated all kinds of challenges in one building. We had no clue what we were doing. And then we realized we can't just keep the people here. We better get them work. And we didn't know what work we we're going to give them. So we said to the people, why don't we start some recycling? Bring all your trash and we'll sort it out. I mean, it was terrible. People brought stuff. It stank. It was 
bad. Here we were every day trying to sort the plastic and the tin and the aluminium and the stuff and the people were trying to work and we made no money. It was just not good. You know what? Now 12 years later, that has become the premier vocational skills training institute in our province where we will have 18 different vocational skills training people, putting people into jobs. We've placed a medical center, dental center, an eye care center. It has developed into something so smashing that the government now brings people to come and see what's happening in the city. And they're bragging on what's busy happening. Why? The principle is we just started breaking the pieces. Fourth principle is stay open so that God could lead you for progressive expansion. Progressive expansion. And time's not going to allow me to say too much about this. But you know, many times leaders are confronted with so much information and so much stuff coming their way. And many times it takes them off course in terms of what God has spoken to them. And, and now it's something new. And next six months it's something new again. And, and the people start becoming confused. But if God is leading you on a path, trust him that on that path there will be expansion. There will be growth. There will be insight into understanding. This is what happened to us. In 2002, I was reading the Bible together with some leaders, and we were reading Mark chapter 6, just reflecting on what God had spoken to us. And as we got down to where they picked up 12 baskets, we just sensed God say to us, it's time for export. Take what you've been blessed with in this city to 12 cities in the world. Right now, we're in city number nine, and we're trusting God, and all of our people know this is what God has spoken to us, this progression. But let me end with what I really believe God might want to challenge you with. And we've coined this just with a phrase, going to the other side. Going to the other side. When the disciples had now picked up the 12 baskets, I mean, they just experienced this miracle. Jesus says to them, go over to the other side. Now, we just glibly read that, but you've got to understand what that meant for the disciples. Because the other side was Not the Israel side. It was not where the 12 tribes of Israel were. It was where the seven nations of Canaan had settled. These were the heathen people. These were the unclean people. These these were the people that were the pig farming, pig eating people. Now for a Jew, a good Jew would never go there because it was bad for you. It was, they were superstitious about this. If you go to the other side, you're actually looking for trouble. A good Jew would not go to the other side. If he did go there and came back, he actually had to go through a whole cleansing ceremony because he'd gone to the other side. And here Jesus is saying to them, go over to the other side. Well, this is not the first time Jesus took them to the other side. If you go read the Bible, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says to them, let's go over to the other side. 
And the disciples don't really understand why he wanted to do this, but, but the rabbis said we must do this. So they get in the boat, and now they're rowing to go over to the other side. But there's this sense of an omen, a superstition. It's bad for us to go to the other side. But Jesus goes and sleeps down in the boat. And then the storm comes up, and, and, and they are confronted with something that they believe. This is bad. Just look at what's happening to us. We shouldn't be going over to the other side. That's why when they wake up Jesus, the only place in the Bible really that I know of, that, that they accuse Jesus. When they say to him, do you not care that we perish? It was as if they were saying, why are you taking us to the other side? It's bad. You know we shouldn't be doing this. Well, what does Jesus do? He promptly gets up and quietens the wind and the waves. And, and then we see they're on the other side. Now, when they get to the other side, there's nobody there to meet them. Nobody wants to engage them. Why? Because they never mixed with each other. The Jews and these people never mixed with each other. And there's nobody there to meet them except one madman full of demons amongst the graves. And Jesus says to the disciples, that's our guy. <laughs> I mean, you've got to feel sorry for the disciples. And here they go. Okay, they get the guy. They drive out the demons. You know what the story is. They go into the pigs. There's a mass suicide. Ruins the economy. The people of the area come to Jesus, and they chase Jesus and the disciples away. They say, please, would you go away? The man that has just been delivered, he says, I want to go with. And then Jesus says to him, no, you can't. I always used to feel so sorry for him. You know what? Jesus was so smart. Jesus knew he had just found the key to that whole region. Now, folks, listen to me. I believe we're in a season as the church where God is going to give us keys to unlock regions that previously the church did not access. I believe that. Well, anyway, Jesus says to the disciples, let's get in the boat. They're just pleased. They're going back to the Israel side. So they're back at the Israel side. Things are happening. Miracles have happened. Massive things. They've just fed 5,000 people. I mean, the fish oil is still dripping from their hands. They're gleaming. And Jesus says to them, guys, go over to the other side. And then he says, and I'm not going with you. So here they get in the boat. Hey guys, I hope everything's going to be okay. And you know, Jesus is not with us. Now they're rowing. And the Bible says, it's so beautiful. Jesus goes up the hill and his eye was on them all the time. It was as if Jesus was sending them so that they can learn and experience that they could actually do this on their own. Because at 12, at midnight, it becomes dark and, and the wind's starting to pick up and they see this trouble coming and, and now they realize, man, we're in trouble. If something happens here tonight, the, Jesus is not in the boat. And the Bible says, Jesus promptly comes walking on the water. Now, folks, imagine just in that moment of angst, on that moment of anxiety, you're thinking about, you know, how are we going to navigate? And the next moment, something comes walking on the water. And they look at it and they say, it's a ghost. 
And what happens? The Bible says, Jesus wanted to pass them, but Peter spoils the program. Jesus has to serve him, get in the boat, get to the other side. Now listen to this. When they get to the other side, 4,000 people gather. 4,000. Why? Because Jesus had told this man, go and tell the story in all the towns, all the cities. Go tell the story. And he did. And suddenly they hear, this, this rabbi is back. And they're bringing their sick and they're bringing the people that need to be delivered. And, and things are happening. And they're ministering to the 4,000. What happens? And then they get hungry. And Jesus calls the disciples and they break the bread again and they feed the people and they pick up seven baskets. Now, as they leave, they're in the boat and Jesus makes one of these statements that they never understood. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And and the disciples are debating, what does Jesus really mean by this, the leaven of the Pharisees? And not quite sure how that pans out. And, And then Jesus They come to this conclusion. They say, oh, we forgot the bread. So Jesus calls them. He says, guys, don't you understand? Now listen to this. He says, when we were on the Israel side, there were the 12 tribes are. How many baskets did we pick up? They say, 12. He says, you're right. He says, and... and when we were on the other side, now the Bible calls it Decapolis. It means 10 cities, but it's seven tribes. He says, when we were there on the other side... Seven tribes. How many baskets we pick up? They say seven. He says, and you don't understand? And they didn't. And I didn't. I read that scripture many times. I said, Lord, what I, I mean, but I wouldn't tell anybody because I could never say that I didn't understand what Jesus was saying. <laughs> Until one day John Altberg opened the scripture. And he says, it's very simple. Jesus was actually saying to them, when we fed the 12 tribes, picked up the 12 baskets, it was more than just giving people bread. It was a prophetic expression. I'm the bread of life. And there's enough for the whole of Israel to be fed. It's a prophetic expression. There's enough for the church. There's enough for us when we gather. There's enough for us when we get together. There's enough for us to feed off the fullness of the glory of Christ when we gather. But Jesus was saying to them, when we went to the other side, the bad side, the side that nobody wants to go, the side that we actually see is the opposite side. He said, how many baskets do we pick up? He says, it's seven. It's a prophetic expression that I am the bread of life. Not only enough for Israel, but I'm also enough for the other side and whether it's this side or that side it's all my side it's all his side the challenge I want to leave with you this morning is what is your other side what is God challenging you to engage and embrace now my time's up and I know I've stolen some time I deeply apologize I'm not really sorry, but I, 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 I have brought you some stuff. If you want to get a more insight into this, would you go pick up some of these? Um, it's 10 bucks each. It's DVDs that will further expound what we've been talking on this morning. But I want to pray for you just quickly. May I just speak grace upon your life. Father, in the name of Jesus. 
I pray for every individual in this house. I pray for every leader, every ministry represented. May the grace of God be so revealed through their ministry that their world, their community, their environment would be aware that God is there. I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.